Well, um, good evening, everybody, and um, welcome again to Gresham College Lectures. Um, I, I want to start by telling you a story. I have a skin disease called psoriasis, and I've been followed up uh, for a lot of my life and um, went for a follow-up clinic appointment at a major London teaching hospital and did what everybody does in outpatients and take, you know, press in your details into a machine and then go to a secondary waiting room where there's usually too much noise or daytime television. And um, I sat there for 40 minutes before a door opened at the end of this room and a young guy came out and said something which nobody in the room could hear. And he looked around, puzzled for a bit, and then disappeared back into the room where he'd come from. And uh, a few minutes later, he, he reappeared and said my name a little louder so that I could just hear it, um, and then went back into the room. So I thought my job was to get up and follow him back into the room, which I did. And in that room, on the right-hand side, uh, was a, a middle-aged, well-dressed lady sitting at a desk, um, typing into a computer and writing some stuff on notes, and four or five medical students against the wall opposite me. And this lady didn't um, say anything. She was uh, the doctor. And she didn't say anything other than, take your clothes off and lie on the couch. <laughs> Which I did. And this was in front of the medical students. Uh, and having been one, you know, I knew that they were embarrassed and I was embarrassed. Um, but I took my clothes off and put it over the top and in the process introduced myself to the medical students. This lady didn't introduce herself at all. Nothing. And after I'd been lying on the couch for a little while, she got up without washing her hands, without sterilising her hands, and came over to, to me, didn't introduce herself again, and started describing my skin to the medical students. And I was um, getting quite cross, as you can imagine. And one of the medical students... Um, started coughing in a sort of noisy, drawing attention to himself way. And he had noticed, hanging over the back of the chair, my badge, and, um, and thought that maybe he should draw this to the attention of the lady. And eventually, in a sort of irritated way, she noticed him, and he pointed, he pointed this out to her. And much to my fury, and indeed embarrassment, her manner changed immediately to an almost sycophantic behaviour. Completely unacceptable. And eventually, uh, I, my, there was no change to my treatment and I needn't have gone anyway, but um, I, I went over to the medical students and said, I hope you learnt something from today's lesson. I'm absolutely certain they didn't learn any dermatology, but what I want to spend the rest of the time talking about today is maybe what they could have learnt. Now... I understand that medicine has changed in the last 50 years. It's got more complex, there's more technology, um, it's more specialised, and um, the demand has gone up and the number of people involved in it has also changed. You see different people, you see more than just doctors, and we work in different ways. But it's still about people. And how important is it then to consider the way in which the doctor or the nurse or the health professional relates and speaks to you. How important is their bedside manner? Well, I want people to be kind. You expect them to be understanding and to be friendly. And um, you, bedside manner incorporates some idea about being empathetic. Now, empathy at its simplest is an awareness of the feelings and emotions of other people. And it's a key element in emotional intelligence. It's how we as individuals understand what others are feeling as if we were feeling it ourselves. It's much more than sympathy. Um, sympathy implies feeling for someone in a way, whereas empathy implies feeling with someone. And it's much more than pity. You could describe it as compassionate care, um, which is, I think, also quite a, a good description. And this is, was defined by Haslam a couple of years ago as the humane quality of understanding suffering in others and wanting to do something about it. But I think there's more to it, personally. There's something about kindness, personal warmth, concentration, attention, listening, engagement, 
and, as we said, empathy. In fact, simply thinking about how you or me would like to be treated or spoken to, examined or engaged with, takes you quite a long way to defining uh, what we mean by compassionate care. If I'm speaking to doctors or medical students or nurses in the hospital, um, I ask them this question, would this standard of care be acceptable to me or my family? Because if the answer is no, then you, as the doctor or the nurse, are the only person who can change the behaviour so that it can be acceptable. And it should be. These are some thoughts from a gentleman called Anatole Broyer in New York. And just, just the green text in the middle from an extract from his book says something about what he was expecting from a doctor, which is that the doctor would focus, would concentrate on his care for a short period of time, put him the centre of the universe for a period of that consultation. Focus and listen. Now, you'd think that anybody going into medicine or healthcare in general would be inherently altruistic. After all, that's why you join. It's one of the first questions you get asked. Why do you want to go to medical school? Because I want to do some good. And shouldn't we all behave in the way that Breuer expects? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But I've heard colleagues described as having the bedside manner of a border guard. And um, I've certainly witnessed it from, uh, for example, the dermatologist that I met. And lots of doctors and nurses clearly lack what you would think would be an obvious skill that you would need in order to deliver care well. So I thought it might be salutary just to make a list of the things that were important to me as a patient, uh, if I go and see a doctor. So first thing is I want them to stand up when I go into the room and greet me and introduce themselves. Sitting down at the desk isn't good enough, really. You wouldn't expect that in any other walk of life. People do get up and say hello to you. I want them to have eye contact with me, look me in the eye and not the computer in the eye. And I want them to not sit on a higher chair than me, across a big desk, with me on a lower chair to create a power gradient. I don't think that's acceptable anymore. Um, I saw a beautiful architectural design of the modern consulting room which didn't have a computer screen on the desk. It was on the wall so everybody could see it and all the tables were round. I want them to be clean. That seems fairly obvious, um, but I've seen doctors who've just come back from mending their motorbike, and uh, I don't think this is uh, acceptable in most people's eyes. Um, I want them to introduce all the people in the room and to treat the people in the room with respect and dignity, because if they treat them with respect and dignity, good behaviour is catching, and that will be learnt by those students or the other visitors. I'd like them to have read my notes before I get in there, or at least all they need to have read, whether they're on paper or electronic. I don't want them to be doing it whilst they should be listening to what I've got to say. I want them to be confident and competent, but I don't want them to be arrogant. I prefer them to be humble and to demonstrate those skills. And I, as, as Breuer said, I would like them to be able to give me the time to present my case and listen to me and listen to me and be attentive and not draw any conclusions too soon. I'll come back to that. I'd like them to show social compassion but also some sort of general understanding and thoroughness so they get through what they need to get through. Sense of humour helps. I'll leave you to read that for yourselves. I don't think that you need to be heavy and aggressive when you're talking to, to families. A certain amount of levity is completely appropriate. Don't lie to me. Doctors do lie, and it's not good enough, and uh, I want you to be honest. I want you to be friendly. I don't want you to be my friend, but to behave as if you were my friend. I want you to be gentle. And understand that I might be terrified to be in that room. 
because it's something bad to have to go to a doctor very often. You're expecting things that you don't like from a physical examination to to bad news. Please speak to me in English, plain English or plain language. In my case, it's English, but it needn't be, of course. There's no need to use jargon. Um, and although medicine is full of acronyms, some of which on the letters A are shown on here, um, there's no need to use them. It's easy to use plain language. And under no circumstances say, this is what we call. This is what we call the ear. <laughs> it's not good enough. And uh, I, it, it already says that you are better than them, and that's inappropriate. And that's just for the consultation. If, they, if I'm meeting a doctor or a health professional for any other reason, like consent or to receive bad news, um, then I want all of the things I've just talked about, but sort of with knobs on. I want them to be more obviously caring. Now, I, I'm not alone, of course, in thinking this through and making some demands. And uh, a man called Anderson in 2007 carried out reviews, on, looked at online reviews of 3,000 doctors in the United States um, and grouped their responses according to what the patients thought were good things and what they thought were bad things. And doctors who were considered good had characteristics which covered these things. They were easy to get hold of. That's what access means. They were good communicators had an appropriate personality and demeanour, and all of the stuff that goes with a well-organised practice were also considered to be important. On the negative side, people who were bad communicators, who couldn't coordinate the patient's care, who had poor interpersonal skills and made it difficult to get hold of them, were uniformly seen to be bad doctors. He concluded that patients may like you as a person, but they're going to judge you on your bedside manner. And he also said that patients, so they demonstrated that patients valued physicians who took time to listen, to work with them or to care about them and to support them in managing their health care and took an effort to personalise their care. This series of lectures is about personalising medicine. So if you take those points, you're giving that person, the patient, some value. Now, um, Many general practices are now so busy that they kind of expect the patient to manage their own disease, to look after their own health care. And I think that it's interesting that um, patients don't find that to be the most valuable way of delivering care. But doctors do have less time. Um, you, you're all aware that the demand has increased and we're all living longer and our cases are more com complex than they used to be. And if you've only got 10 minutes to see someone, your general practice is busy, your emergency room is busy, your clinics are overbooked. And it's harder than ever to form a relationship with a doctor in a general practice because very often you're encouraged to see the first one who's available. So where's the relationship? Is it possible to be compassionate if you've got 10 minutes, only 10 minutes, and all those pressures? Well, it may be difficult, but the consequences of a loss of compassion are um, extreme. We've all seen reports in the newspapers of when compassion, loss of compassion gets transferred almost into cruelty. And at its worst, this was seen in mid-Staffordshire and in a series of incidents in care homes around the country where people theoretically devoted to the care of their patients had transferred through loss of compassion into some other state, which was more like cruelty. Patient surveys um, have demonstrated that many staff struggle to deliver care. And you can see from um, this uh, article about patients' views, which was published in The Guardian not long ago, uh, about all the things which are very similar, in fact, to what Anderson found in the survey in the United States that patients don't like all this stuff. How can it be that clinicians, nurses, doctors working in healthcare can get to a state where they don't care? It's really difficult to understand if you are, enter the profession wanting to care. I think I just want to read to you a very simple tale, not one of the worst tales, a simple tale from the Francis Inquiry into Mid-Staffordshire. And if you'll excuse me just reading this out. Um, 
As I walked in, my mum was on the bed, on a bedpan, and she was falling off and was in agony. She'd been left like that for over an hour. The nurse's call button, which if you'd read in my mother's notes, and my mum had said before, please don't leave the call button out of reach, had been hung over the top of a drip stand, completely inaccessible. I struggled to reach it when I got in the room. My mum was in absolute agony as I walked into the room, and I can still hear her screams. I slammed the nurse's button, the emergency button, and nobody came. I had to run out and said to someone, please, please, somebody come in and help my mum. As we went back with the nurse, eventually, they went, ooh, we've forgotten about her. And I said, can't you hear? And at that point, she grabbed my hand and said, my mother grabbed my hand and said, please don't let me die in here. The nurse came in and said, oh, I'm sorry, we'd forgotten about her. Yes, she's been there for some considerable time. She never apologised to my mum. That's such a simple story about a bedpan. But that's a tremendous demonstration of a loss of compassion in a simple aspect of care. Just four weeks ago in The Guardian, an anonymous senior NHS doctor recounted his distress at seeing his own father, who'd been a, a GP for 40 years, the way he was treated, and he summarised it as badly and without compassion. And he thought about it some more and said, actually, a load of my patients have been in that position, if I think about it honestly. It, it wasn't unusual. It happens, he said, all over the country. How is it, he asked, that we've come to accept the mediocre and accept the way things are? He thought maybe it was a failure of leadership, a failure of training, failure of government investment, too much pressure in the system. And he put it down something like this. Perhaps our altruism has slowly decayed and we're too exhausted to change a broken system. Haslam argued that compassion is not an optional extra, and I completely agree with that. But all too frequently, it gets downgraded against the science of treatment, you know, the quality of the drug or the skill of the surgeon. And there are many reasons that it's got downgraded, but at least one is the way the workload and the system have changed around us, which make it, do make it more difficult. Um, Michael West from the King's Fund has, has looked at this recently in staff surveys. The pressures that are currently existent in the system are affecting the 1.4 million people who work in the NHS. 1.4 million. In surveys, more than 50% felt they were unable currently to meet the conflicting demands. 40% had been unwell in some way due to stress in the previous year. And the debilitating levels of work stress were 50% greater than in the general working population. Uh, he said that this undoubtedly impacts quality of care, but probably error rates, certainly the ability to be compassionate, and there's some evidence that it affects clinical outcomes. You, it's exactly what happened in Mid-Staffordshire. It's not just the events of the individual patients, but the overall culture of the institution, which gets downgraded. Okay, so it's difficult now. It's hard now. Was it better in the good old days? Um, I don't think it was, actually. Um, when I was training, medicine was um, very authoritative. It was very patronising. It was routine not to tell patients that they had cancer, but to explain to a relative that they had some terrible disease, often explained very badly. And there was little in the way of ongoing support to people with chronic and severe illness. Doctors took the view that patients should be protected from the knowledge because it was bad stuff to know. Ward rounds were led by senior consultants in white coats, um, revelling in the authority over the students who trail behind them. Patients were interesting cases and discussed in front of this entourage almost as though they weren't there. Informed consent was much less informed and was sometimes absent. Doctors knew best. So I'm not entirely convinced that the old days were the good old days in the context of compassionate care. 
And yet, the idea that the way in which a doctor relates to a patient was important is, of course, not new. This is what Hippocrates said in 400 BC, um, that the the patient um, recognised that the relationship with the doctor was important. The more quality the relationship was, the more likely the patient was to get better. He also gave very clear instructions how doctors should behave. And again, I'm going to read this out to you. This is Hippocrates' translated words. The physician ought also to be confidential, very chaste, sober, not a wine-bibber. I like that word. He ought to be fastidious in everything, for this is what his profession demands. He ought to have an appearance and an approach that is distinguished. Everything ought to be in moderation, for these things are thought to be advantageous, so it's said. Be solicitous in your approach to the patient, not with your head thrown back arrogantly or hesitantly with a lower glance, but with the head inclined slightly as the art demands. As the art demands. He ought to hold his head humbly and evenly. His hair should not be too much smoothed down. Nor, listen listen to this East London, nor his beard curled to that of a degenerate youth. (laughs) Gravity signifies breadth of experience. He should approach the patient with moderate steps, not noisy, not noisily, gazing calmly at the bed. He should endure peacefully the insults of the patients, since those suffering from melancholic or frenetic ailments are very likely to hurl evil words at physicians. Some of us in the audience will probably recognise the last sentence, I think. Well, we may now be more relaxed about what doctors wear or how they present themselves than they were in Hippocrates' time. But how they are perceived by their patients still matters. The old lady who hears this, sit up Doris, when she's used to being called Mrs Jones in her daily life or maybe Professor Jones... The failure to ask her how she prefers to be addressed shows a complete lack of respect. And it's one step away from a lack of compassion, and a lack of compassion is a few steps away from cruelty. It horrifies me, as it did in the clinic, that some patients and doctors and nurses, some doctors and nurses, never seem to engage the patient in eye contact, don't shake hands or use any other kind of introduction, and don't say what their name is. It's so rude, so degrading, and somehow um, it demonstrates contempt or disrespect. This is Kate Granger, Dr. Kate Granger, and she experienced this during her own treatment for a rare form of cancer in 2013. Um, She was so horrified that so few people introduced themselves, even though she was a doctor, that she started a campaign, a very successful campaign, called Hello, My Name Is, with badges that look like that. And you'll see doctors and nurses now in some hospitals wearing them. Kate sadly died after she got her MBE in 2016, but her husband Chris is keeping up this campaign. And I think it's such a simple and such a brilliant idea. It deserves wide exposure. Hello, my name is. And my name is not Dr. Martin Elliott. My name is Martin Elliott. Doctor is a qualification. I really hate it when somebody says, I'm Dr. So-and-so because it's already positioning themselves in a slightly different power gradient than I think is acceptable. My name is Martin Elliott and I am is a completely different way of saying the same thing. Now, let's let's think about that consultation when a a doctor meets a a patient. Um, We've talked a lot about those opening salvos, the greeting and the introduction. Um, But how you start off that meeting is quite important. I mean, you could say, why are you here? Um, But most people with a 10-minute appointment are tempted to say, how's your knee? Because they know you're coming about your knee. And it's unsurprising that if you ask a question like that, you'll spend 10 minutes talking about your knee. And um, you'll finish your appointment in 10 minutes, but you may well miss the real reason the patients come to see you. Classically, you need to learn and I did this very badly, it's probably why I end up as a surgeon, to ask open-ended questions such as, what can I help you with today? There are many other versions of this question. It may not be the best one, but it allows the patient to express what's the matter with them. 
In fact, doctors inherently, without knowing it, are um, quite worried, it turns out, that if you give a patient an opening like that, they'll talk forever and ever. And it'll lead to a long rambling speech with all sorts of false trails and unresolved complaints, unsolvable complaints. In America, doctors interrupt patients within 22 seconds of that opening speech. But there's a really nice study done um, of 330 patients where doctors had been trained to um, ask an open-ended question and then trained to shut up, basically, and just sit there and wait for the patient to finish their speech. And, um, in fact, patients, without being interrupted, spoke for only a median of 59 seconds and a mean of 92 seconds. 78, three-quarters of the patients, completed their statement within two minutes. Only seven of those 330 patients spoke for more than five minutes. So even in a busy practice, faced with time constraints, financial pressures, two minutes of listening time should be possible. And that'll suffice for 80% of the patients you see. And obviously, it's only by listening that you're going to be able to understand what the patient's wanting to say to you. So let's talk a little bit about listening. It's a sort of intricate skill that we all possess without really thinking about it. It's like walking. You just do it. But in a, in a consultation, the doctor is listening for a purpose, trying theoretically to somehow extract information to help define the problem they have to solve. But on its own, as Graham Brody pointed out in this excellent book, incidentally, by Daniel Offrey, Daniel Offrey on its own, listening isn't quite enough. You kind of just sit there and express, expect the patient to chuck out everything that's important and you just gather it all together, hoping it's enough. But actually when you're listening, you need to help extract that information by some verbal nudges or, uh-huh, or whatever to try and um, move that in, in forwards to make sure the patient gets everything out clearly. Um, in fact, it's very interesting when you read medical records, you come across things like the patient was a poor historian, um, which it means that the clinician or the listener hadn't actually managed to get out of the patient what they wanted to get out of them. Whose fault is that? It sounds almost like an insult. I'm sure it's not meant as one, but it reads like one. As a result of not listening or not hearing, miscommunication in clinical meetings is common. And um, miscommunication means that patients and doctors may hear different messages that they hadn't really anticipated. Miscommunication is common enough to lead to error, but it also is the most common cause of complaints in hospital. And in many cases, particularly in litigious states, leads to litigation and cost, therefore. Uh, And it's not just patients who miscommunicate. I I just want to give you an example um, from a team I was involved with. Is when I managed my own department in in the cardiac unit at at Great Ormond Street. We had some uh, pretty high-flying people on the management team who were all incredibly opinionated and bright. And although we had the, the same goal for what we wanted for the department and the same ambitions, we were sure we were right as individuals. And we ended up having a lot of shouting matches, and which we found very difficult. In fact, often ended up nearly in tears. And we eventually hired a coach, a, um, an organisational psychologist, who worked with us for a while. And, and she ended up doing something which many of you may already know about, but it's such a simple thing to do. Uh, she basically said to us, when you finish shouting at each other, just the first person who wanted to say something say, what did you think I was trying to say? And the second person who heard it, who didn't agree, said, this is what I think you were saying. And very often they're completely different. And simply by batting that backwards and forwards until you say, yes, now you understand what I was trying to say, and yes, I'm repeating it back to you, then you move on because you've got over that little hurdle of not listening. And that can happen in any conversation. I still use this technique at work, and um, I think probably at home I probably should sometime. But it's, uh, it, it's necessary, I think, to get over that hurdle of um, what is listening. 
Now, you may not agree with this Catholic philosopher about her core beliefs, but I think if you listen well, you're halfway to healing because you do understand more about what that patient's problem is and what matters to them. We are prone in medicine to use judgmental language. Here are some things from Daniel Offrey's book again. The patient failed chemotherapy. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous. The chemotherapy didn't work, but it's nothing to do with the patient's failure. It just didn't work. The patient refused treatment. Actually, maybe opted not to have treatment might be a better way of saying the same thing. And the patient was non-compliant. Didn't um, do what I told them to do. Now, these... um, You can recognise the truth in some of these things, but they are written in a way which immediately demonstrates a gradient of power between doctor and patient. And power is present in all social relationships, all of us. And it comes from three key sources, force, material sources and knowledge. And a doctor has more power inherently because, of course, they have more knowledge than the patient in most cases. And in, in my case as a surgeon, I also have the ability to inflict pain which gives me quite a lot of power. So if you think of this as a a spectrum with the doctor on one side and the patient on another, uh, at one end of the spectrum is paternalism, where doctor knows best. The doctor will make all the decisions for the patient because they know everything about this subject and there's no point in asking the patient anything because they can't possibly know all there is to know about oncology. Now, something else called doctor as agent, when... The decisions the doctor makes are on the perceived preferences of the patient. So they've gone a little bit further to trying to understand what the patient wants, but they're still making the decisions themselves. At the other extreme is completely informed decision-making, where all you do is tell the patient everything they need to know and then say, what do you want? um, And of course, the real understanding between patients and doctors happens somewhere in the middle and will be different from each patient. Um, maybe you can uh, um, understand this a bit more if we look at the way power can be misused by either party so if we go back to those three characteristics of power and look at misuse of power by the doctor where you might be playing God um, for instance Ian Patterson or Harold Shipman taking a really unusual dominant position of what your role might be. Uh, Making decisions where you um, want to make money out of the job that you're doing, an unnecessary treatment for money, and there have been examples you all have read about. And then those ones which are about uh, information which allow you to read, um, without commenting particularly, because they're all fairly obvious. The bottom one, where the doctor's own beliefs influence what they want to do to the patient, is something that I think all of us in medicine will have seen. But patients aren't immune from abusing the power they have. So sometimes people will use their social standing. Um, I can't really think of a particular example, but someone rich and powerful uh, may demand a particular treatment or access to a treatment that might be denied others. Uh, They might then fail to pay or, uh, or sue the physician in order to make money, and so on. And sabotage... Uh, the treatment at the bottom um, by falsely using the information they hold. So abuse of power on both sides will continue. Let's go back to our consultation. At the end of um, 10 minutes or so, uh, you might want to end the conversation. I mean, if you're in a cocktail party and you want to move on to the next person, finishing a conversation can sometimes be quite difficult. Um, It's a common problem. And in a busy clinic where you know there's a load of people outside, ending a conversation, ending an appointment, can be quite challenging. It's a wonderful paper which is titled, Oh, By the Way, um, from um, White in 1994, looking at what happens at the end of an appointment. And um, in uh, 86% of those situations, the doctor winds up the conversation. So, um, thank you very much. It's time for this to finish now because I've got to move on to my next one. And will, in three quarters of cases, clarify the treatment plan before the patient leaves. 
which leaves 25% of people who maybe didn't have their treatment plan when they're there. But most importantly of all, a fifth of patients say something new just as they're leaving the room. Maybe the real reason they came to see the doctor. Now, no one wants to be rushed, but rushing brings with it a potential one in five chance of missing something that's important, at least to the patient. So the message would be, concentrate right to the end. Don't forget those last few seconds. And time is really important. If you've only got 10 minutes, it's been a real privilege to me to work with people and to see people work who somehow have the ability to make 10 minutes feel like 30. They sit with you, they talk to you, they, they feel as though they've given you much more time and much more concentration than the 10 minutes has gone by on the clock. Uh, I hope you've all been lucky enough to meet some of those people. I'd like to be able to give you the names of the ones I've met, but I think that would be advertising. But they, this is a real talent, and a talent to be sought out, I think, in doctors, and trained for. I think it's trainable. Now, uh, okay, so it's pretty obvious that a good bedside manner, I think, is at least helpful for patient satisfaction and for the relationship that you build up. But does it make any difference to outcomes and to the treatment you give? In some ways, it'd be rather surprising if it did. That's not what you're looking for. But in fact, it has been demonstrated that if you train doctors in empathetic approaches to care, certain things do get better so that it becomes possible, for example, to get better blood glucose control in many diabetics and quicker recovery from simple ailments like a cold because of the way that the patients have been dealt with in the surgery and a study was done in 2014 of the only 13 randomised studies looking at um, modifying the doctor's behaviour. So training the doctor in empathy, communication skills and so on, on various clinical outcomes. And much to the author's surprise, there was a small but um, just significant improvement in clinical outcomes, which were things like pain, weight loss scores, blood pressure, depression scores and quality of life, in those people who had been cared for by trained doctors. Small, and more research is needed. Which, of course, brings you to the question, can you teach bedside manner, a good bedside manner? Kelly's work suggests that uh, if you do train doctors, you can improve their behaviour um, when they're working in the system, but maybe that's a bit late. Wouldn't it be better to hire people, to bring people into medical school who had naturally empathetic skills? After all, they're going to be needing it all their lives. <coughs> it's pretty hard to get into medical school these days. Um, I, don't know, I can't see out there, but I don't know if there are any medical students in there. The bar is set really high, and it's not uncommon for me to see students with straight A's. But do four A stars make you empathetic? Do they give you good people skills? Or do they just prove that you can sit at a desk for a long time? There's no good screening tool, unfortunately, for deciding that before you get into medical school. But what we do know is that empathy scores do decline during your period at medical school. So whatever the score means on the left, and I'm going to differentiate men and women because uh, the women in the audience will be delighted to hear that women are inherently more empathetic than men. But during medical school, over four years, the empathy scores of both sexes decline. You don't get more compassionate as you're at medical school, you get less compassionate. And if you look at the pink line on the women and the grey line on the men, that declines most. And that's the people who go into Non-core specialties, non-core specialties are things like I did, like cardiac surgery, or women going into uh, orthopaedics, for example. So the more specialised you become, it appears that you are more vulnerable to losing your empathy during your medical school training. Uh, uh, what that screams out is that we are not supporting students as well as we could, and many medical schools now have introduced extensive training schemes for um, uh, medical students because they're probably more attracted, it seemed, one of the explanations for that decline was they're more attracted to role models who were authoritative and skilled and effective 
uh, like Dr. House? Well, sometimes doctors make mistakes. Anna, you need to try twice as hard to fix them. Are you using your inhaler? All the time. Go through one a week. You sure you're using it right? Do I look like an idiot? Nope. Why don't you show me how your inhaler works? It's probably a hymn at his least grumpy, but he got to the core of the message in that authoritative and skilled way which medical students seem to be attracted to. It's not exactly empathy, but it made me laugh anyway. The second reason for the decline was that um, people at medical school were suddenly seeing stuff that was very damaging to them. Seeing ill people, injured people, sick children wears you out. And maybe the medical students were deteriorating because they got compassion fatigue. And clearly there was even more of a need for training to support that. Medical schools have taught listening and communication skills since these were discovered. And it's become much more common now, as you'll hear in a moment, to have actors playing out the roles to show people how it should and should not be done. Video demonstrates good and bad. I want to show you an example for how not to do it. Hi. Patient has been complaining of back pain and night sweats. Blood tests and urine analysis are normal. MRI suggests a massive intradural malignant schwannoma neurofibrosarcoma extending into psoas muscle with nerve root compression syndrome and bone erosion. Growth extends from L2 to L5. We'll send patient for biopsy to confirm. Yes, question. Sorry, I just, I, I didn't follow that. Is there, is there something wrong with me? Yes, uh, well, if you look here on your MRI, you see this cephalopod-like object that's spreading down your spinal column. That is a massive schwannoma neurofibrosarcoma. Okay. Uh, so sorry, I, I just don't know what It's a malignant tumor. A tumor? Yes. Me? Yes. Hey, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I, you know, I recycle. Actually, your case is really quite fascinating because your cancer is the result of an incredibly rare gene mutation in chromosome 17 of the P53 gene that causes the growth of malignant cells. It's good to be cautious for nurses. I don't need to tell you why that's bad. Um, the, the three or four words that this poor young guy heard were lost in this morass of useless detail and absolute absence of emotion an absolute absence of compassion and concentrating on the technical side of this really interesting tumour. Um, there's lots of papers which have demonstrated that using actors to improve communication skills really helps. Questions become more open-ended, less leading. Um, patient, doctors refrain from interrupting. They're better at summarising information from patients and they become more astute in following the patient's leads in a conversation. And the skills are maintained if you do such training. Um, but um, sometimes the acting doesn't work quite so well. Oh, Mr. Cosner? Yes. I have some bad news for you. Oh, is that? You have two weeks to live. What? Two weeks to live. You need to be a better actor. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to know what message you take home from that, isn't it? Um, we're really lucky in London um, because there's a group called Performing Medicine, two of whose members of the Claude Ensemble are at the front here. Um, they um, teach medical students and existing doctors and health professionals in several of the medical schools in London uh, and change their behaviour, reinforce good behaviour and try and uh, eliminate 
um, the worst. The core skills can be relearned and reinforced throughout your working career because we all get compassion fatigue and it's important that we're aware of that. Teaching people to respect their patients and treat them with dignity is vital. And one of the things that the performing medicine team have realised working with guys in St Thomas's is that actually the healthcare workers, as you probably heard from that work by Michael West, need to look after themselves too. And I don't think that until um, this group of people had concentrated on this so well, it became quite as clear a thought process as they demonstrate in this video, which is called Circle of Care. They wanted to put the humane back into the medical staff, caring for the staff. Hmm. Sounds, sounds good. But in a complex, pressurised and changeable environment, it can be difficult to consistently deliver the level of compassionate care we'd like to. Workload, time pressures, paperwork, new policies, the unpredictable demands of the job, there are many potential obstacles. Even in a perfect system, working in healthcare would still be emotionally and physically demanding. Research shows that there is a strong relationship between the well-being of staff and the outcomes and experiences of their patients. So, instead of thinking of care as something that flows in one direction, from professional to patient, imagine a circle in which care flows in all directions, between staff at all levels, patients and their relatives, carers and friends, and where healthcare professionals also care for themselves. To keep care flowing around this circle, we must remove the obstacles in its way. And this requires certain practical strategies and skills. There are many ways to develop and practice these skills, including a wealth of methods developed within the science of human factors and in the arts. Across sectors, these methods have helped people become better communicators, team players, leaders and decision makers, to become more aware of their own needs and the needs of those around them, appreciate the stories and experiences of others, and much more besides. Put into highly effective practice within a healthcare setting, these skills strengthen the circle of care, like the spokes of a wheel. Without them, the flow of care around the circle would slow or even stop. But with them, it's strong, and it has the power to take healthcare in the direction we all want it to go. Once these practices are established, care can flow freely around the circle, allowing us to work more skillfully and easily, and to deliver the quality of care that really matters to us all. So essentially, you're seeing something which is about respecting each other and providing care uh, across the spectrum of the working group. Now, when I was preparing this lecture, my wife pointed out that um, much of what I've been talking about could be described as good manners, actually. Um, little more than that. And she was clearly onto something. As Michael Kahn, writing in the New England Journal, recalled many patients complaining that the doctor just stared at the computer or never smiled or who had no idea who they were talking to. And then he went into hospital. And I'll read what he said about that experience. During my own recent hospitalisation, I found the old world manners of my European-born, he works in New York, European-born surgeon, and my reaction to them revealing in this regard. Whatever he might actually have been feeling, his behaviour, his dress, his manners, his body language, his eye contact, was always impeccable. I wasn't left thinking, what compassion? Instead, I found myself thinking, um, maybe to my surprise, um, what a professional and even what a gentleman. And the impression he left was um, remarkably calming. And it helped to confirm his suspicion that patients may care less about whether their doctors are reflective and empathetic than whether they're respectful or attentive. And he created something following this thinking, which he called etiquette-based medicine, uh, which should prioritise behaviour over feeling and practice and mastery over character, character development and put professionalism and patient satisfaction right at the centre. 
and he created a little checklist which looks remarkably like the list of things that we all want to have. I won't repeat them again, but the open-ended question at the end to allow the patient to express what they feel. Etiquette-based medicine. Medicine is a profession devoted to people. Maintaining a good bedside manner in the current atmosphere of medicine worldwide is challenging. But not to maintain it, I'd say, is inexcusable. There is no excuse for treating these people without compassion or respect. However technologically advanced we become. Because you need a relationship between the patient, yourself, and the caregiver. A good bedside manner is needed not just from doctors, but from everybody you interact with, from the receptionist to the physiotherapist. Lose your bedside manner, lose your compassion, and you're one step away from the cruelty we've seen in nursing homes and in Mid-Staffordshire. It can be taught, we've seen that, but it must be funded. And the people who are responsible for medical education and for our ongoing in-service training, I think, have a duty to raise the funds to make sure that compassion remains at the centre of our work. It leads to better relationships. It encompasses the primary values of, of healthcare, the altruism, which hopefully we all went into it in the first place. And it obviously leads to good patient satisfaction and I would argue good job satisfaction for those of us who do it. The consequences of losing compassion, losing your bedside manner, are unacceptable in both human and economic terms, hinted at by Gwen's story. I think those who show no compassion should in some way be identified and retrained first. If they prove not to be retrainable, they're almost certainly in the wrong job. We must listen to patient complaints and act on them. Patients are actually incredibly tolerant of bad behaviour because they're vulnerable and at the mercy of the system, mercy of us, and they complain late. If we don't respond, it may be too late to modify the behaviour of all those whose behaviour can be changed. Losing compassion, losing heart and losing your bedside manner uh, will cause harm. I put it to you that a good bedside matter does matter. Thank you very much indeed.